Hey everybody, welcome to the 19th episode of Drive Through FM. Uh, this podcast is coming out a little bit earlier than it would normally be the right schedule. I know the last one came out a few days later. This is coming out about a week early. I've got a little bit of a juggle in my kind of schedule with doing videos and podcasts and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so I guess I apologize <laughs> for having it a little early, but there you go. Uh, the reason that my schedule is a little bit out of whack is I'm just kind of juggling a few things. The main thing is Tabletop Showcase. So if you don't remember from last year, uh, myself, Rodney Smith from Watch It Played, Jamie from The Secret Cabal, uh, Marty and Tony from Rolling Dice and Taking Names, Matt Evans and all of his friends from Board Game Replay, Chaz Marler from Paradise Paradise, uh, we all get together and we decided to start doing this last year to do a tabletop showcase. So last year we did it for The Godfather from Simon Inc. And then this year in probably, I think, two weeks from the time that you hear this podcast, we'll be doing Wildlands from Osprey Games. Uh, now Wildlands is a kind of a miniature skirmish game designed by Martin Wallace which is not something that he's really done before. General gist of it is that uh, there's sort of a kingdom that's long uh, desolate and, and blasted away, and you will take control of a war brand of somewhat shady characters to a greater or lesser degree who are going in and trying to recover the treasure and then combating other war bands. It's got some really cool hand management uh, types of mechanics, which is very sort of Martin Wallace feeling, where you've got to be very discreet and smart and efficient with the card play that you do, and then there's a couple of interesting ways to get victory points versus getting treasure or attacking your opponents and that kind of thing. So I will put a link to our announcement video, which is over on the Watch It Play channel. I'll put that in the video and podcast description if you want to check it out. I will be focusing on the painting of the miniatures that come in the game. And all the other folks will be focused kind of on their type of thing. So Rodney will do a how to play. Matt will do uh, his board game replay style with sort of a playthrough and a walk back. Uh, Marty and Tony will be doing an interview uh, with Martin Wallace. Uh, Chaz will be doing a sort of a, a highlight feature on Osprey themselves. And Jamie will be digging into kind of the theme and the mechanics and all that kind of stuff, giving you a real kind of nice overview of a lot of different parts of the game. So I've been busy working on that. I've started working on the video and started painting a lot of the miniatures. Uh, I actually got a chance to get an early copy of the expansion, which isn't coming out until a little bit after the game. And so that's 26 completely different miniatures. So it's not like an army where you have maybe five different miniatures. There's 26 each individual miniature. So I came up with what I think is gonna be a sort of beginner-friendly style of getting everything painted. It should be an affordable way to get going because uh, I figured the Martin Wallace side might attract, you know, some of the more Euro gamers, the board gamer types. And so I figured I would try to do something that, hey, this is a, a good board game. These are very, you know, easy miniatures. They're not complex. They actually come pre-washed, so you can already kind of see some of the detail in there for you. Uh, anyway, so that you're going to see some of that here in a couple of weeks. But that's been eating up a, a fair chunk of my time. And then I'm also working on painting some other stuff I'm going to be doing as well a playthrough slash review video of the Warhammer Underworld's uh, Night Vault. So that's kind of the sequel to Shadespire, the expansion to Shadespire. So I've been doing that and so getting that stuff ready. And then also kind of working on a couple other things 
um, sort of behind the scenes. We'll see if they come to fruition, so I don't really want to mention what they are. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so just kind of a juggle on my schedule. I've been picking up uh, doing more reviews recently as well. Hopefully, if you've been paying attention to the channel, you've seen more videos than there were uh, in the sort of medium past, not too distant past, I guess. So yeah, so that's what's going on. I, I don't really have any other games to talk about. I've got one little game I want to talk about just briefly, and then we'll get into the main topic, which if you are looking at the podcast or on YouTube, it's a games as universe. And sort of to be more specific on that, I'm going to talk about some books uh, more than actually games today and books about games and also some of books uh, supplementing games. So some fiction that will supplement uh, the game universes that you may or may not get into. Uh, before we jump into that main topic, I just want to talk quickly and briefly about a game that I'm not going to do a video on. It's uh, the Medici card game. Uh, this is from Grail Games. I just recently did a review for them for Yellow and Yanksy, which I absolutely love. Uh, Medici, the card game, I don't I'm, I don't hate it. Uh, I, don't, I definitely don't love it, though. It's I think it's a fun kind of carry along with you on trip kind of filler game. Uh, if you've played the original Medici board game, which Grail also uh, did publish, which is still a fun one that we bring out at lunch, this is kind of similar. It's a very pared down type of thing where you're flopping one, two, or three cards, and then you have to take the last card that you flopped, no matter how many you flopped, and then you can take a little bit more past that as well. So you might leave some cards out for other players that they might have interest in, and it's got the same kind of thing where some of the cards have... Uh, points on them there's kind of like a coin value and then they all have a indication of a particular type of good so you could have like a cloth with a four and another cloth with a three and you might have a spice with a one or a zero or two or something so you're trying to collect uh, certain types of goods over the course of the game to score bonus points as the game goes along but you're also trying to uh, as you build these cards and put them in front of you that's kind of like your boat and you want a very valuable boat to score big points each round as well and it's okay. I've played it a couple times at different player counts. I definitely like it at the three and the four player count the best. Once you get up to the five and six, it's just a little bit too much kind of chaos and things changing to really even hold my attention, frankly. Uh, but even at the three and the four player game, it's kind of like just okay. You know, it's not really got much going on. It's not terrible. Uh, I mean, we did have some fun with it at the lower player count. Um, so if you want some kind of like sort of a travel game, Kind of thing that's pretty light and it kind of fits in that same sort of vein as a as a sort of the same vibe i should say as coloretto or something like that it kind of fits in that same sort of vibe so yeah that's uh, medici the card game designed by reiner canizzi I, I didn't mention that before for some reason i assumed everybody would know that he designed medici the card game but yeah i should say that um so yeah so that's from grill games definitely take a look at it if you want a kind of a travel game but it's like, it's all right. You know, it's a, you play it at a low player count. It, it's going to be kind of fun. it will be worth some plays. So other than that, that's really the only kind of preamble. Uh, I have had a chance to play Night Vault. Really enjoyed that. Uh, well, I've also been playing Wildlands too. Um, I know I'm just going to be doing a video focused on the painting side of it. Uh, but I do enjoy the game. I probably won't mention that. I'll try to remember to mention that during the video. But I've, I've enjoyed painting it and I've enjoyed playing it as well. Uh, it's definitely a game... Uh, to kind of give you a quick sort of sense of review, maybe a first impression kind of thing. I've played it twice so far, and it definitely uh, gets better as you play it because you got to learn to kind of be very smart with your cards. If you just kind of spend them all and just do, oh, this is the obvious thing to do, you're going to end up not having any cards. So it, the game will sort of 
uh, almost like punish you in a way back for kind of shooting everything out and just you know getting everything done. And the sort of pre, there's a pre-game kind of draft setup thing that you have to be. Uh, I think you want to explain to new players uh, how they could sort of give somebody an advantage. Uh, when you kind of draft your, your different treasure and uh, player character locations and stuff like that. So that's the only kind of little idiosyncrasy that I would throw out there is it's, I think it's going to be a game that you just have to be very careful at the beginning as you're teaching new players uh, to be smart with how, how they draft the location cards. And then again, as you play through, I think a game or half a game, you're going to start to realize, oh, I shouldn't have done that with the card. So but it, it's like it's going to add a lot of replayability, I think, because of that kind of thing. So it's definitely a game I, I super enjoy, and I probably won't be reviewing it for some time because uh, you're going to see my painting video, and you're going to see a ton of content from Tabletop Showcase uh, about the game. But I definitely, I definitely give it a recommend. That's for sure. And I should, uh, it'll be clear on the content that comes out with Tabletop Showcase. This is sort of a paid promotional type of thing. Uh, none of us will be doing really a review of it. We're going to be covering very various different aspects of it. Uh, the review I just gave you, that's for free. <laughs> so you can just take that with what you want. But I do want to be up, up front and clear about that, that it is a paid promotional uh, week. But I'm more than happy and excited to uh, you know put my time in. And uh, I'm super excited to show you the painting video. So it's not something I've done much of on the channel. But I'm definitely excited to uh, get that put together and finished up and share that with everyone. So let's take a quick little break here. And then I'll kind of organize my thoughts around some books and we'll talk about some books about games and books that are part of the games. Okay, welcome back. Uh, today we're going to talk about some books. And the first book I want to talk about is actually authored by Marco Arnaudo. So if you're not familiar with his YouTube channel, I will link it below. It's uh, He's Marco Wargamer on YouTube, and he reviews not just war games, but he reviews all kinds of games. He reviews Euro games, war games, uh, very historical-based war games. He reviews miniature games from time to time. He reviews, you know, very story-based games from time to time. The name of the book that he's authored is called Storytelling in the Modern Board Game. And the full title is Storytelling in the Modern Board Game, Narrative Trends from the Late 1960s to Today. Uh, so the book is very sort of academic in nature, but I would say its intended audience uh, sort of is sort of the whole gamut. You, if you're a designer, I would say you could get a lot out of it. If you're in academia and you're studying things like narratology and ludology and stuff like that, you're going to get a lot out of it. And if you're just a gamer, uh, you might get a lot out of it just to kind of show you some different ways to kind of look at games. And so sort of the main takeaway, I'll kind of preface sort of the review of this book, if you will, with this, is he chunks things apart in a way that's I don't think is typically discussed uh, I have seen it discussed in, in this way in some cases, but the majority of discussion is usually kind of the Euro mechanics heavy thing versus the very thematic heavy side, or we'll call it the Ameritrash side versus the Euro side. Uh, 
So you see a lot of times stuff broken down like that, where a lot of people are, are more concerned with the strategy and the mechanics and that kind of parsing versus other folks that might want to just get into the story and the theme and that kind of thing. And then, you know, folks are also going to vary and be into both types of things. But he sort of takes a prism and looks through it in terms of the narrative that can be presented uh, in a game. And it kind of breaks it down and walks through a little bit of the history, the recent history of gaming going through. He actually has some references back to the Renaissance times at court where they would play very story-driven games. Uh, You might think of a game, a modern game like... Well, let's see. The first one that comes to mind would be I Dark Overlord, and that's A-Y-E, I Dark Overlord, where it kind of just, you flip some cards, almost like tarot card kind of thing, and then you drive, the the players kind of come up with a narrative and sort of tie together loosely some kind of narrative around that. And so that was some games back in the Renaissance time where it was a narrative-driven game. They'd have cards and things that would then you know, drive the story and actually started to use tarot cards actually and, and do a little bit of that. And so he makes a quick mention of that early on and then kind of steps up into uh, you know, Dungeons and Dragons, the role-playing games, that kind of stuff, uh, moving along into sort of the 90s and things where you had uh, like Hero Quest and that kind of stuff, sort of Dungeons and Dragons versions of board games. And up until we start, he starts talking a little bit about paragraph games like Tales of Arabian Nights. He even talks about uh, legacy games and how just the legacy aspect of that pulls the focus more towards the story versus, you know, the mechanics and versus replayability, which is a, you know, sort of a hallmark of a game. If you just look at a game all by itself, take away the narrative and the story, a good game is something that you want to be replayable, you know, as many times as possible. But a legacy game, is by very its very nature is not replayable and therefore the onus is on the storytelling uh, aspects of it so he covers a whole wide gamut i'm not going to get into certainly every aspect that he covers but one of the interesting things that started to get me thinking about this wanting to talk about this a little bit more was sort of these different uh, scaffolds or these sort of things that you can sort of hook on like pretend you've got like some kind of utility belt around you with these sort of gaming concepts and you sort of sort of are traversing uh, Gotham City, right? And uh, in this, this, this giant field of all of these different games and these different alleys and, and niches and things that you can sort of maneuver through. And you're firing out your, your little web shooter or your utility belt and sort of latching on to these different uh, scaffolds, these different things that you can sort of ground yourself in to get you into the game. And specifically, in this case, into the story of the game. Uh, so one of the things he talks about was sort of the overall, the bling of the game, miniatures, you know, being able to paint them, uh, you know, getting into the game that way. Uh, the other way is through the smart use of mechanics. So, so like the legacy aspect, that's a very broad and general mechanic, but that's one aspect that you can sort of latch onto and sort of the immediacy and the dramaticness of like tearing up cards and never being able to kind of go back and redo it. That's one thing that will get you into the story. And just smart mechanics that make sort of thematic sense within the context of sort of that game's universe. Uh, One example, a very simple example I can think of is he talks about the deck of cards. So when you go into, maybe you're going in a dungeon and you are in front of a treasure chest and then you simply draw a card out of a deck of treasure cards. So that simulates finding something you don't expect to find. You, You could find an empty chest, you could find this magical sword or this healing potion or something like that. That's a very simple idea of 
instead of like a table that you roll on, you have this physical deck of cards and you're going and digging out of that. So you're like almost physically, you know, going through that process of digging into uh, some dust and then pulling out this card, which indicates the treasure. Or just to kind of pull away from the whole fantasy, you know, Tolkien aspect of things, think of a game like Twilight Struggle, where you play a card in that game and they have activation points on the card and an event. So you play the card for its activation points to maybe push some political influence around, let's say in the Middle East, but the event is something that your opponent can then trigger. So it's almost like a little bit of a blowback kind of thing. So because you're being very manipulative and deceitful over here as a superpower in that game, then that will sort of have a ramification uh, that will kind of blow back because maybe you were ignoring a certain area, you know, thematically, or this because you're a direct influence that will have a little bit of a reaction uh, against, uh, you know, some other kind of little sort of thing will spring up uh, that was sort of out of your control. Um, because in that game, in really the whole kind of just that game is you have these two kind of superpowers, uh, the Soviet Union and the United States, kind of pulling the puppet strings of the rest of the world. And meanwhile, these things are sort of have all, of course, lives of their own and goals of their own. And so that kind of stuff is going to sort of, you know, percolate through the way that you play simply just these event cards for action points or for the events and things. So just that simple card mechanic of playing the card and the fact that they in that game they broke up the deck of card in kind of three acts, you know, early, middle, and then the late game. And that helps kind of steer a larger narrative arc over the course of the game. So that's kind of a general idea of some of the points he gets at in the book. And his overall larger sort of uh, purpose or sort of point with the book is that, yes, at the end of the day, games are vehicles for stories, for narration in the same way that a movie or a novel or something like that is. It has those same uh, uh, scaffolds that you can grab onto that a book or a movie will have that will pull you into a story. And not just in the way of players telling each other a story. So if you kind of take it back to the original Renaissance point where they flipped some tarot cards and they just kind of uh, you know, did a improv basically based on the tarot cards. Uh, and, and even above and beyond, you know, a role-playing game, which gives you sort of a setting to live in, but a lot of times it's basically, uh, you know, one player, the game master, throwing out situations and then throwing out bits of the story, let's say, and then the players who are playing the adventuring party or whatever it might be are going to throw the story back at them. So that is also a little bit more on the improv side, uh, although not as extreme as, you know, strict improv with tarot cards. Uh, but you can really get at a straight narration where the designer themselves is really through the vehicle of the mechanics and some of the supplementary components and the decks of cards and the miniatures and everything is telling you a story that the designer wanted to tell you. So I thought that was very, very, uh, you know, an interesting uh, read and probably, frankly, is not really news to anybody listening to this podcast, I would expect, uh, maybe a little bit, but uh, one of the points he even makes in the book is that, hey, all these people that have been playing games for the last couple of decades, they already know this stuff. <laughs> so you can see a, a lot of the sort of the um, target of this is also kind of academia at the end of the day, where it's like, hey guys, this uh, this genre, this whole medium really is uh, very capable of telling a story and conveying a story. So that gives you kind of a general idea of storytelling in the modern board game by Marco. Uh, I'll put a link to it on Amazon. You can find it several places though. 
but this book kind of arrived at an interesting time for me because I've actually been reading through a fair bit of a lot of the Warhammer Age of Sigmar uh, novels and short stories and things like that. And well, I, I read through, so okay, I read through uh, a sort of a giant volume of reprints of The Realm Gate Wars, volume one. I'm actually into volume two now. And that's sort of like a retelling of sort of the birth of the Age of Sigmar version of the Warhammer universe. And I'm trying to kind of sort of catch up through and get to kind of where it is now with some of the more recent releases, uh, you know, with the Soul Wars box set and the new Shadespire Underworlds uh, boxes as well. So all of this really got me interested in thinking about, okay, so all of these different games have their own kind of like little universe, some more than others. Like for, I've got example is uh, Kalis. In that in, in some senses, that's also grounded in reality and sort of history, uh, because in that game you're building up a castle and then sort of the surrounding village and then town that sort of supports the building of that castle. So you've got a little bit of narrative there. You've got a little bit of a universe uh, that you step into. And if you think of something like uh, Rising Sun or Blood Rage, even though those are totally fictional to a degree, uh, sort of based in based in in, in uh, myth, regional myth. So the Blood Rage is like. Uh, you know, Vikings and Nordic myths and Rising Sun is uh, Japanese myths, you know, to a certain degree. And then they kind of embellish on, on both of those those myths there. Uh, but they all kind of create their own little special universe that's off on, on its own. And then, you, of course, you have the big stuff like the Warhammer, a Star Wars universe. You know, and the Star Wars is interesting because that's like its own IP. And then it comes into the game. So you're stepping into sort of the IP in the universe of the movies and the comics and the books and stuff where something like Warhammer or Dungeons and Dragons is created for the game and then it's spun off other, uh, you know, media. Like there was a Dungeons and Dragons movie and there's been thousands of Dungeons and Dragons, Forgotten Realms, Dragonlance books. There's been a bunch of Warhammer fantasy books, Warhammer 40,000 books, now the Age of Sigmar books. I think there's even like Blood Bowl books <laughs> that you can read about the Blood Bowl universe, which is separate from, uh, you know, Warhammer Fantasy. It's its own kind of like alternate fantasy where there's no war. They just have Blood Bowl matches to sort of settle their differences and stuff. Uh, so there's actually like Blood Bowl books that you can read. So each of these games really has a its own kind of universe around it. Now, a really abstract game is not going to have it. So if I'm looking at my shelf here, I see Drop It, which is uh, it's like a dexterity connect four game where you drop drop these abstract uh, you know shapes like squares and triangles and things of different colors into a slot. There's not really I wouldn't I wouldn't go far as to suggest like that game has a universe or that game tells a story. It doesn't. It just really does not. You know, if I were to play a game of checkers or chess or something, then I don't really think those tell much of a story either. Although chess is interesting because. And Marco kind of talks about this in his book. You've got checkers with the little round discs, and then you have chess, which you have different components. You have, you have different, like, almost like little miniatures, because you've got the knights with the little horses, and then the castles, or the rook, or the little towers, and stuff like that. And the king has a sort of papal type of motif, and then the queen has the little crown thingy. And so, in a certain way, chess is probably tells more of a story than checkers does, but I wouldn't say definitely like chess doesn't tell as much of a story as, you know, Warhammer, <laughs> you know, not even close. But for example, let's take Caverna. Caverna has, I think, a lot of narrative and story in it. Uh, it's, you know, you've got different sort of little, I guess, tribes of dwarves, 
and they're each kind of building up their little cave network and setting out certain dwarves on quests and going on adventures and building up their own little, little kind of industries and stuff like that. But you wouldn't probably have a novel written in the Caverna universe. Although I kind of think you could. I don't mean, I don't know how many people would buy it or be interested in it, but I could certainly see somebody wrapping some fiction around uh, some of the more, you know, traditional, like just board games. Like you see a lot of novels, like I said, with Warhammer and Dungeons and Dragons and stuff like that. And we've seen comic books for Dead of Winter and I could see them doing a novel or something. I could see a Dead of Winter TV show. I mean, we have The Walking Dead and a thousand other zombie things, but I could see that existing. I mean, we have a comic book, like I said. I could see like Lords of Hellas was a game that came out earlier this year, which is weird sort of pseudo-futuristic Greek type of thing. Uh, it feels very much like, uh, I don't know, I guess like sort of the Wonder Woman uh, type of fiction with with sort of the Amazons. So the Amazons are sort of like a Greek or, or Roman vibe thing. And then, but they have like, somehow they have sort of a technology, you know, it's sort of like a, a twist on sort of those ancient myths, which the Wonder Woman kind of fits into that vibe. So Lords of Hell sort of is in that same ballpark. And you could certainly see like comics or, or um, you know, or novels and stuff. And I know Awaken Realms who publishes that, they have like a little comic book and novella for the Edge, which is a, a different universe than Lords of Hells, but it's another sort of skirmish game. I mean, there's there's a couple of Frostgrave novels at this point. So you have, in this case, uh, narration in, in storytelling supplementing the games, which is really, really interesting to me. And it's not something I've really given much thought to and something I've always just sort of compartmentalized inside of my brain. It's like, okay, that's just kind of silly. It's, 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 it's lore, it's fluff. It's just kind of there for somebody that's really into maybe that particular universe, just to kind of keep them living there. And I think probably from a marketing perspective, it's, it, I don't think it's cynical to say the stories and the fluff and the comics and all that stuff, it keeps somebody living there, it keeps them sort of coming back to the universe. It gives them something else to do in between like releases for uh, new model releases or new set releases or new rules updates for, for miniature games. So it keeps them kind of living there and coming back to it, keeps them interested and not moving on to something else. But I also think it does have some kind of value uh, add to the game experience as well. And that's been a kind of interesting process to me, kind of <laughs> circling all the way back to talking about the Realm Gate Wars novels, is I had read the first two of those some time ago, it was about a year ago, and man, I just could not get into them. There was just a lot of sort of uh, bravado posturing. It's set very much with the Stormcast Eternal guys. If you're not familiar with Age of Sigmar, they're sort of the good guys. They're these angelic knights that are sent from heavens. And uh, they're sort of like a, a Viking sort of thing, but more in like the Thor style of Viking where they come down from Azir or Odenheim or whatever you want to call it. And then so they come down and they're fighting these like bloodthirsty cannibal chaos people that are just uh, devoted to this god of corn who's just wants you to kill everything and so from a sort of a high level it's very it's kind of silly like it's very archetypal like this sort of idealized version of a good knight from a warrior from heaven versus this low base creature barely human type that eats other people and is just terrible and just wants to kill because they're just driven by this really unrealistic uh, type of blood bloodlust 
And so when I was reading this, I was like, yeah, I'm kind of, I'm into the whole like Mad Max vibe of this universe. Because obviously, if you watch the channel, I'm into the Age of Sigmar stuff. But those two novels really did not uh, hit home for me. I thought it was just kind of, uh, I don't know, I don't want to say basic, but it was just very like too straightforward. The good guy comes down. He's, you know, they're here for revenge because they were all shoved away and sort of uh, had to go into exile and the universe is sort of taken over by this base chaos types of creatures. And just the transmission of that through those two novels was a little bit too straightforward, right? There wasn't really much nuance, in, you know, anything to kind of bite into. But then after a while, I heard a couple of podcasts I listened to. Uh, they expressed similar sentiment, but not to the severe point. I mean, I think they kind of like it. They're a little bit more into it than me from the podcasts. Uh, so, but then a lot of them mentioned this book called City of Secrets, which is not about the Stormcast Eternals at all, and not about anything to do with the corn or anything. It was a sort of a regular dude, let's call him, and he was part of the Free Guild, and he's a human being, and he was born in the in that realm where he lived, and uh, he kind of came up, and he was part of like the City Watch. He was sort of a guard, and uh, he gets kind of caught up in this sort of uh, very uh, sort of conspiracy inside this large city of Excelsis. And so he meets up with this witch hunter who's sort of like an agent of Sigmar. He's a human being as well, uh, but he's sort of uh, special special forces, let's call it, you know, he's sort of a, a CIA operative in this universe. He's, he's, just, he's on his own usually and stuff. And so that story was a little bit more grounded in uh, something I could attach to. And so they actually run into a Stormcast and from their perspective, the, the well, the main character's perspective, the Stormcast is a jerk. He's this sort of cold, unfeeling thing. Doesn't really have time for their concerns and stuff like that. And then there was a sequel uh, called Callus and Toll, and th those are the two two characters, the Witch Hunter and then the uh, Freegold uh, Guard. And then they sort of they band together after the first book. It's not really a spoiler, and they go on some other adventures and things. And uh, so through those, I was able to kind of get into it more because I'm like, okay, I can get into this a little bit more because I'm seeing it through the perspective of a regular person, which is what I am, right? I don't, you know, I'm not uh, somebody that could like relate to an angelic, like a super angelic or super demonic force. Like it doesn't strike, it doesn't strike home with me. Like I don't, uh, you know, I, I don't relate to that, <laughs> let's say. I don't always dislike stories with these sort of high-minded principalities. If you think of like the Lord of the Rings, where you have Sauron and Gandalf and these sort of, they're very like un unobtainable, really. Like nobody can really, like Bilbo can't start off and then one day he gets to become Gandalf or Sauron. They're sort of these sort of large abstract uh, aspects. And so sometimes that's interesting, you know, to have in a story. But I typically am more into something that's a little more grounded, a little bit more gray. Um, you know, people that aren't necessarily perfect uh, so that was able to get me into that. And so I was like, okay, so I'm kind of vibing with some of the the weird, very Warhammer funky magic that they have. Uh, it's just as an example in the city of Excelsis in this example, they, uh, they have this special dust where it's almost like a drug. They don't really make this sort of hint, but this is kind of my projection on it. It's like a drug and they sort of buy and sell it and it gives you a prophecy. And so the more you have is like the more you know. So somebody will want it so they can go like, this is a stupid example, but they'll want to go bet on a horse race because they know who wins because they got some of this special dust. So the whole town is just sort of awash in this. 
and it's sort of regulated as well. They don't want everybody touching this. And that's part of what adds to the conspiracy is that they get involved with uh, initially, it's like in the first chapter, so it's not a spoiler, you know, somebody sort of smuggling a bunch of this stuff. And then it just kind of the story kind of spirals from there. Uh, but because it was sort of grounded, I was able to sort of get into the actual fiction of it just beyond the game. Because the game for me, I grounded in, like I said, it's kind of a Mad Max fantasy. At least that's how the early part of the history of that universe is. Because it's very wide open and chaos is everywhere. So I kind of, I like the Mad Max stuff. That's something I, I like. And so I was able to get into it. And then that would, when I was playing the game, I was able to, you know, latch on again to that scaffold of that and, and have fun with it. But then because I read those two novels, I was able to kind of get into it more. So I went back to, again, these Realm Gate Wars books, and I got this large volume that they did. And it's like, I don't know, it's like five books with a bunch of short stories, and it's two volumes. And the second volume is like another four or five books with a bunch of supplemental short, short stories. And those are, again, all the super stormcast guys fighting the demons of Nurgle and Corn and Zinch and all this stuff. So it's very sort of higher fantasy where there's like lots of huge magic and just craziness just kind of above and beyond sort of the low very human uh ground level magic let's call it so i was able to get actually into those stories more because i was putting it in the perspective of thinking about it from the perspective of callus and toll the the humans and saying okay this is kind of like it could be myth mythological or something but anyway i was able to kind of get into it and ground myself more in that setting but only because I had a re I'd kind of not given up on the universe and gone back to those two books, City of Secrets and Callus and Thole, and that was able to get me into it even more. And I thought that was just a very interesting kind of process uh, to go through. And just to kind of bring it back to the actual mechanics and how the reading of these different fictional books and everything uh, brings me back into the actual gameplay, the actual process of moving miniatures and rolling dice and all that stuff. Uh, when I specifically with the Realm Gate War stuff, when I go back to it and I read it, and I start to see how they kind of illustrate the battles and describe the movements of the troops and the, you can picture the different heroes and using their special abilities and their and their special magic and all that kind of stuff. It really gives you a sort of a way to round things out. So in Warhammer, for example, you roll a lot of D6s. You roll a lot of six-sided dice for everything. So if you're going to charge, you're going to roll 2D6 to see if they have enough nerve to make the charge and run in and get into close quarters combat. If you cast a spell, you're rolling dice. If you try to see if you hit, you're going to roll a D6. If you're really good, you're going to hit on a 2 or higher. If you're not great, if you're just a little punk, you're going to roll on a 6 and barely ever hit. But... As they describe the battles and things, they get into a lot more detail. So like on a particular data sheet or a war scroll for a particular unit, it'll say they got some swords or whatever, they have some guns or, or whatever, and they you roll some dice, they'll hit on a four, they'll wound on a four, they're a pretty average unit. But in the fiction, they don't just like swing swords and that's it. They swing the sword, they parry, they grab the guy by the throat and they choke the life out of him. They wrestle in the mud. They get separated from their unit. If you have a guy that's on a mount, for example, he's not on a mount the whole time, but obviously your miniature figure, you don't take the guy off the mount usually <laughs> and, you know, separate them. They, you know, you just move the one model around, but it gives you some sort of little gaps and things that you can sort of fill in and gives you some ideas to kind of carry into the narrative of the game. And it really supplements and enhances 
the narrative. And I don't think that's like a flaw or a weakness or a hole in the game. It's just that this is serving as a supplement to that to kind of say, hey, here we've, we've, we've pared thing down, things down. We don't want to make it ultra complicated and have you just granularly do every last little thing that you can imagine because then the game would take years to play a single game. And Marco actually talks about this in his book, getting back to his book, where he said you could have a game theoretically where you moved and posed the miniatures every little inch of the way and you moved his little sword arm. Think of like little Legos and stuff. You kind of move them and you could move them mid-walk and mid-swing and just get really granular with it. At that point, you might as well play a video game or something, right? Uh, but even video games, they aren't like a perfect simulation of every last, you know, sort of realistic real life implementation of a thing. Uh, you know, so the the fiction itself is is coming back and informing you to say, okay, you know, you just rolled a dice. And the cool thing about Warhammer stuff is the dice are sort of, you know, they're kind of can be all over the place. You can have a guy that's really excellent and he's supposed to hit, but you're going to roll a bunch of ones and he's going to miss. And, or he's going to get all the hits in, but then the defender is going to block every last hit. Or next time, he's going to just pulverize the guy. Or it's going to be more of a stalemate, and you're going to get some hits in and some not. So the fiction itself adds a little bit to that sort of realism and that sort of visceralness of it, where it gives you sort of just clues and little hints of things that you can sort of just fill in and say, okay, at this point he like blocked his elbow and then, you know, the other guy picked up mud and threw it in his face and, you know, he's blinded and stuff. And they really wrap a lot of the lore and stuff in the case of Warhammer, not just in the fiction, but in sort of the different uh, battle tomes or rule books for each of the different units that you can have. So you can kind of uh, pair that with just the fiction and then really get into the flavor and just suck you in more and more and more into the narrative because you have all these kind of little signposts that you can sort of attach on and these scaffolds like I talked about you can latch onto. So kind of getting back to the overall general topic of it as a game as a universe. So when you think about a game as a universe, it's different than a game as a theme or a game having a theme. Because all these games have a theme to a lesser or greater degree, but once you start to sort of just you know wrap it around with this sort of uh let's let's call it cellophane or something not as uh, as weird but you know you kind of just wrap and wrap and wrap and wrap all of these kind of different levels and these different moments and and things that can go like you can happen outside of the actual game session then they start to take on this universal quality and not just because like we have a warhammer universe where you have a history and a lore and all that but the game itself starts to develop a universe and even through like multiple plays let's take dead of winter for example you can start to develop that universe with your group because you have the history of the games that you've played over and over again and that's going to you know give all of the different characters like they have the little dog character and they have uh, like for example in eldritch horror we have sort of uh, given the actress i don't remember her name i just know she seems to be really good at everything every time we play so she's kind of taken on a life of her own. And that gets beyond just there being a theme and her being an actress and being versatile because she, you know, theoretically, because she's an actress, she's stepped into different roles and she's kind of learned a lot of things through her acting gigs. But she is an excellent, like, savant at dealing with, you know, Lovecraftian beasts for some reason in our group. And so that starts to elevate it above theme into the level of this is a universe and it, it, it's, a, it's a little bit more broad 
than the just a basic theme, you know, the basic story that you're being told. And so that fiction can come through multiple gameplays, uh, like if you were to play a campaign or something like in Frostgrave or Imperial Assault or Warhammer, and you start to develop that long arcing narrative, you know, across the games and tell yourself stories. You can, you know, in this case of Warhammer, you can go buy novels and, and read the stories, but you can also tell each other the stories, come back to the game, and that's just gonna kind of have a kind of a circular uh, spiral, <laughs> kind of going down the drain from reality into this game universe uh, by wrapping all these mechanics around again and again with all these stories that just seem to pop out of nowhere. So that's been something that has kind of surprised me, um, you know, just about this, my whole kind of process or whatever, my journey uh, in the in the gaming and stuff, is just how kind of interested I've become. I'm going into reading, like I said, the Realmgate Wars Volume Two and getting into more of that stuff. And uh, in in, a, in another game, just to kind of dovetail off of the miniature stuff, uh, you know, we've been playing Root uh, a lot lately, and also Everdale, and they're both uh, games that I've I've reviewed on the channel. So definitely go take a look at that if you want or are more interested in. Uh, the mechanics and stuff and how they work but they're both in this anthropomorphic sort of universe separately uh, where you control these different animals that are behave as if they're thinking intelligent beings that have some sort of uh, uh, driving force not, not not to say animals aren't thinking intelligent beings I believe that they are but just let's say very very intelligent in this case where they have big, built these networks of things and organize and build villages and stuff like that you know they act very human and so those have little interesting sort of micro universes in each of those games. And I've found with both of those games, frankly, that, um, you know, give or take uh, having a good game or a not so great game in terms of the mechanics, in terms of trying to win the game uh, with both of these, both of them, I always have a sense of a story at the end of the game. And I know like a lot of times people have just, I've watched some good reviews on Root and Everdell and just, and read comments and things about that. And it's always focused on the mechanics of the game in both cases. I don't, I don't think I've seen much, if at all, discussion about the way that they tell story. And I find that both of the games uh, succeed greatly at telling a story and providing a narrative there. Now they're very competitively oriented games. Uh, for sure. So certainly when you're playing the games, a lot of times that kind of takes over and that sort of drive sort of gets into your brain and you start to think very sort of abstractly and very mathematically in a lot of ways using the right or left side of the brain, I forget which it is, and the sort of storytelling sort of whimsical side of the brain sort of gets shut down. But I've always found at the end of it that when I take a, a breath and look back, I do see a very solid a narrative and so part of the point of this whole podcast is trying for myself and I just just to maybe kind of put the thought out there to sort of readjust um, possibly your attitude about going into a game and definitely the competitive nature will take over even when I'm playing you know a, a skirmish game like Frostgrave or Age of Sigmar the competitive side drives me and so I'm thinking about probabilities and all that stuff of, okay, if I move these units in here, I'll get this many dice rolls, I'll use this ability now, it's going to affect this, but then maybe I should save that ability for later because then this objective will be in play, blah, blah, blah. So even with that kind of game, the competitive mathy side, the side that wants to win the game, takes over. But I found that the more I can kind of pump the brakes and 
sort of just smell a little bit of the roses, smell those kind of narrative roses along the path to victory or loss, the more enjoyable the game is as a whole and the more I want to actually come back to it and play it and thus get better at the game and become more competitive at it. So the way that those two kind of things you know, work hand in hand is very, 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 very interesting. And I'm just very curious about folks' thoughts on that, on how the narrative can sort of drive the competitive side. Now, a couple of uh, podcasts or blogs ago, I talked about like the top 10 strategic games with narrative or something like that, or narrative games with strategy. And so I talked about a lot of games that are very, very sound competitively and balanced mechanically and all that stuff, but have a very strong narrative. And so that's something that I'm always fascinated with, uh, with these different games. And just kind of going through the process, reading Marco's book, you know, reading again some of the Warhammer books and then, you know, going back through them a little bit and getting more into them that way has kind of informed the gameplay. And just kind of having that attitude with uh, Root and Everdell, for example, uh, is something that you can just see a real strong uh, story element to those. And it makes me want to keep them and keep playing them. And it just has that kind of like extra scaffold again that I can hook onto. I can hook onto cool mechanics. I can hook onto some of the random luck of, you know, the dice rolls in Warhammer or, you know, getting the right combination of cards in Everdale or something or some of the sort of the chaotic luck of the other players in Root and how they behave in situations. And then I hook onto the cool mechanics and all that stuff and the interesting combos and all that stuff in all three of the games. And yeah, that's just something I wanted to sort of muse about and think about and just kind of put that out there in terms of, you know, what you can actually get at. And I think there's a lot of more uh, well to be plumbed here in the gaming arena in terms of the types of stories, the types of subjects. Uh, you know, a lot of times it's because of the competitive side of it. Even if you're playing co-op, you're still like competing against the game. Or if you think of a game like Fog of Love, you know, there's not really a competition there, but it's it's more of a, almost a tarot card kind of thing where you're flipping the cards, playing the cards. You have a little bit more agency, obviously, than in a tarot card type of thing. Uh, and if you're not familiar with Fog of Love, I should say, go back. I've done a review. There's a bunch of other reviews about it. Um, but it's that's almost on the side of, yeah, you're playing tarot cards, but you have some agency there and some control over where your relationship in, in the context of Fog of Love goes. Um, so that's just a very interesting time to be a gamer because I think designers are discovering and stumbling upon in some cases uh, some of these interesting stories that they can tell uh, you know through the aspects of the game and the mechanics and in the case of like you know Warhammer or whatever that's like driving novels and comics and movies and stuff like that uh, you know that are out there that are then kind of reinforming and you kind of reinvest back into the game and sort of the story that you get to latch onto. And you get to have some sort of authoritative voice, you know, in the story. You get to tell a little bit of a little, your little kind of nook and cranny, your corner of that little universe and be a part of it. And that's just kind of an interesting place to be, you know. I don't have to sit here and consume media and consume, you know, a stricter narrative of, of, of a video game. Not to like bash on video games, but... You know, video games, sometimes they do give you those avenues for exploration and telling a story. Some of the better ones do, and a lot of them are just straight linear, like you're going to run down this path and go right and jump here and try to beat this boss and go to the next thing and the next thing. You know, some of them are a little bit more sandboxy. But keeping it in the tabletop world, it's just a real interesting sort of spot to be in. And I think like books like Marco's and some other books that have been written 
uh, and Marco makes makes mention of some of those books. It's a it, it's an interesting discipline, you know. It, it, there's there's a world to explore here, and I just encourage anybody um, that wants to get into it and you know get into the design side of it or get into maybe thinking about it a little bit more critically than I've done here, but more akin to like how Marco was thinking about it. Uh, I think there's a this is there's an interesting wealth. There's like some goodness at the end of that tunnel uh that's i think is going to be rewarding for folks and like marco says in the book you know people that have been playing games for a little while even a short while they know all this stuff like you just kind of intrinsically or intuitively know what i'm getting at um and i think it's just interesting to sort of you know pump the brakes a little bit focus on it a little bit just maybe give you tools i don't know to communicate to people that don't know i don't know that doesn't really matter to me but it's it's just an interesting thing to kind of like pause and take a quick look at and maybe not rush through uh, in, in terms of, and I have a tendency to do it obviously because I'm like a reviewer or whatever I'm called and, you know, to rush to the next game, the next game, the next game, but kind of pump the brakes a little bit, go back and explore, look at, look for the story underneath all of that because a lot of games, look, look at my shelf, a lot of games that I've kept, they have those elements. They all do to some larger or or, or, or lesser extent, they have that that narrative aspect uh, hidden sometimes underneath the covers there. So anyway, I just want to talk a little bit about that and definitely go pick up Marco's book. And uh, I would say pick up the Warhammer books, but if you don't play the game, the one thing with those books is you probably won't even know what's going on. <laughs> you kind of have to play the game because it'll mention something that like, well, yeah, they mentioned that in the core rule book, so I know what that is. But I was thinking... You know, if I were to go recommend this book to somebody off the street, they would be like, I don't even understand what's happening. So that's the interesting thing about the Warhammer is like you have to play the game to know the book. But I don't know. It's, it is what it is. So just don't go pick up some Warhammer book and think it's going to be interesting because <laughs> it's probably not. Uh, unless you play, then it'll probably be really cool or not. So anyway, that's just a little bit of a rambly podcast there. And uh, again, like I said, look forward to the Wildland stuff, uh, the Night Vault stuff and a couple other things probably after that. So thank you and take care.